It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Can we get a little context wherever we are? This is the most famous narco cemetery. There's been documentaries made about this. It's sort of a, a pilgrimage site for people who are interested in narco culture. And it's just a, hundreds and hundreds of extremely elaborate tombs and mausoleums that narcos build to live after death. Is it true that they have air conditioning inside? Sometimes, yeah, some they do. You'll see. We're at this cemetery called Jardines del Humaya. It's on the outskirts of Cuyacan. Yeah, this one is legit like a modern condo that would sell for a million dollars if you put it in uh, like Seattle or something. Some of the tombs don't just have air conditioning. They have little living room type spaces where the family of the deceased can actually hang out when they visit. And you know what? They are getting bigger and bigger and more extravagant. Some of them cost half a million dollars. I've been here probably like 10 times. And when I bring people, especially gringos, no offense, guys. I look at the faces to see their expressions because they always look so astonished. It's got like you know, little like dome-shaped tops with crosses. They're all very colorful. This is the tomb of El Barbas. His real name was Arturo Beltran Leiva. He grew up with El Chapo. He's also from La Sierra. And they were business partners for years until they turned on each other. It's got a, like three stories with two turrets on the top and a glass door, and inside uh, you could tell that he was an important guy because there's this huge floral bouquet, and there's sort of offerings. There's cans of Tecate lights, uh, there's a bottle of champagne, there's uh, some statues of the Virgin of Guadalupe and of Jesus. When he was, he was buried in this place, they placed uh, heads of his enemies. Like actual human heads? Yes, here in his honor. Holy shit. That's really intense. Whose heads were they? Some people believed they were their, his enemies, and other people said it was his people, and his enemies brought the heads and placed it here. We oh. never know for sure. This is the brother of El Chapo. So this one's got uh, angels sort of praying on the front, and then inside there's all sorts of stuff including a cake with a mini cowboy hat on top. Uh, there's some balloons with uh, like cow balloons. There's statuettes of deer and horses, mini bottles of Coke. Oh my God, describe that stained glass window. <laughs> there's a stained glass window of him smiling and riding an ATV with shorts on. Or is that a jet ski? Some sort of outdoor vehicle. Oh, there's water splashing up, yeah. He looks very happy. What do you think? Is this absurd or like, 
I mean, part of me feels weird to laugh at all. I was talking to this the psychologist. He told me the biggest the tomb, the biggest the guilt. Here are all these guys who are actively part of the violence in Mexico, and they have these elaborate graves their families can visit, while tens of thousands of regular people are being murdered or disappeared, and no one even knows where they're buried. And the violence is not letting up, even with El Chapo in custody in the U.S. Episode 7, The Fallout. 2017 has been Mexico's most violent year since the country started keeping records 20 years ago. At least 23,000 people have been murdered. That's one death every 20 minutes. The increasing rate is being blamed on corruption, a weak judiciary, and the extradition of drug lord El Chapo to the U.S. Chapo's capture in early 2016 and his extradition that next January had a big impact here. There was a power vacuum in the Sinaloa cartel that quickly turned into a struggle between factions. Without Guzman at the head, the cartel splintered into smaller gangs that battle each other and the rival new Jalisco Generation cartel. In the first half of that year, close to 900 people were murdered in Sinaloa alone. Remember, 900 is just the bodies that the government counted. The actual number of deaths is much harder to know. In many cases, they find nothing. No bodies. Some people just disappear. Let's go, Keegan. Yeah, picture this in the middle of the night. You know, not, no one is going to be here. No police agents, no nothing. So mm-hmm. they just come, uh, dig a hole, and just uh, bury the, bo- uh, the body. In recent years, civilians, usually women, have been forming their own groups to search for loved ones who have been disappeared. They've given up waiting for the government to take action. So they go out and try to locate unmarked graves by themselves. So they don't, they just got an anonymous tip. Somebody came and said, hey, there's probably a body behind the supermarket on the street on the outskirts of town. Right. We're in an open field on the outskirts of Cuyacan with a group of women who call themselves Las Rastreadoras, the trackers. I met Isabel like a year ago, right after her son was taken. She sold all her things and made her home into an office for the group. This is a sign outside that says, do you have a family member who's disappeared? We can help. Her living room is full of pickaxes and shovels. She's tacked up photos of her son and other missing men and maps of places where there might be unmarked graves. Her son was a cop here in Sinaloa. He was disappeared a year ago. In that same week, nine other cops from his unit, including the commander, they were all disappeared. This happened after Chapa was captured, when factions of the Sinaloa cartel were fighting for control of Culiacan. Where do you, where do you start? How do you even start to look when you have no idea where? Pues con una pala y a pegarle a la tierra hasta que se hunde sola. She's saying that you just keep hitting the ground until the trouble just sinks in. She says her instincts as a mother are what guide her. And she says you also start thinking like a criminal, 
Like, if I killed you, where would I bury you? And how would I disappear you? So she's poking a hole in the ground and looking for the, the smell and the feel of the earth. She's like smelling the tip of this, this metal rod that she's put in the ground. What does it smell like when you find something? She says it's a smell you can't compare to anything else. It's not normal. It's really strong and that the first time you smell that, you'll never forget it. Por ejemplo, este es un hundimiento no normal de la tierra. So there's like sí. a little, there's a little like sort of dip, dip in the ground here, and since that's, it looks doesn't look like any other any other place, that might be the spot where the ground has has sunk in because of a shallow grave. They look at the ground for little imperfections, signs that somebody has been there before, places where the dirt has been disturbed or traces of a fire, since sometimes people will burn the body before burying it. This is such a needle in a haystack situation. Like this field is huge. It's maybe five football fields, and we're in one spot that is like three feet by three feet, maybe. We start digging with them. They have to be really careful not to disturb what could be a crime scene. So we've come upon a little mound of rocks, and it looks like there's some like partially burned material on top. And since a lot of the, the bodies are burned, they think this might be a grave site. While we're digging, some guys walk up to the site. She says that we have to be careful of people like that because you never know who they are. But a lot of the time, they turn out to be punteros, lookouts, people who check things out and report back to the cartel. So we always have to be careful. In this case, those guys we thought were lookouts just gave Isabel a tip. They said we were close to the right spot. I was asking her where the spot is, and she says, this place is so big. It's like, who knows? You just keep asking yourself, where, where, where? We don't find anything that day, but somehow Isabel doesn't seem frustrated. They will come back here. They return to the same spot until they search every inch. What what happens on on the day that, that you find your son? What do you think? What do you, have you envision that day and what is it like for you? Yo creo que sería She's saying that the day she finds her son, it'll be like her soul will return to her body, almost like giving birth again. She says, like, think about it. Your mother dies and you're an orphan. Your wife or husband dies, then you're a widow. But if your child dies, 
Who are you? Viuda. Pero se te muere un hijo y qué eres. They know that what they're doing seems crazy. That people see them and feel sorry for them and think searching like this for missing bodies is pointless. No, no estamos locas. They also had this song they wrote to the music of an old ballad. They sing it when they are going out to search. It says, we are not crazy like they say. We are looking for our children, and no one can stop us. You see that police uh-huh. car? It's like a police truck. Is that a Sinaloa State Police? Yes. Ever since Javier was killed, mm-hmm. that police car is parked there. Does that mean it's actually safer? Nothing is safe. I mean, <laughs> if they're coming after you, they will get you. So once you are in that list, you're, you're gone. Javier Valdez was the co-founder of the paper I worked for, Rio Doce. He was a good friend. And he was killed on May 15, 2017. There's no name on the book. Yeah, this is just like a building with no, it's not obvious that this is a newspaper. We have to be buzzed into the Rio Doce office. And once we're through the door, there's about a half dozen reporters sitting at desks piled high with papers. Rio Doce's main focus is the drug trade and unearthing government corruption. In their offices, there are signs of Javier everywhere. Posters in his honor, a plaque with one of his quotes engraved on it is hung up near the door. We duck into an office so that we can talk. Can we close the door really quickly? Okay. Do you want to tell us a little bit about Javier? What, what made him so respected? The fact that he was fearless. He, he loved to tell stories about people that somehow were involved in, in the organized crime and somehow were victims of that life they had. What kind, what kind of a person was, was Javier? Just describe, like, what was his personality? He was the coolest guy ever. He was, he was so funny. He loved to eat. He loves to drink. He, we used to go to this bar just across the street. It's called El Guayabo. And the waitress, the, the waiters, they knew him. They just got sitting this table in the corner. And he just, una cerveza. <laughs> he was, and then this was a very old lady who used to sell peanuts. He was just with this trash, uh, and he was uh, bringing these peanuts. Yeah, bring me some peanuts. And he, was, he would just sit and just wait. Just, I think he just enjoyed the, the atmosphere of cantinas. 
What was up with the hat? I feel like one of the things that he's he's best known for now was his this Panama hat. Now you see in the posters and every picture he's got the hat. Why? Nobody knows about that, but my belief it's uh, Javier one day was like put, put on this Panama hat and was like uh, somebody else told him, Javier, you look so good in that, <laughs> with that hat on. And ever since he wore that hat. It's like his Indiana Jones signature. Yeah. Javier was really well known for his column, which was called Mala Yerba. It was mostly stories people involved or affected by the drug trade. He'd written it for years. But at the beginning of May last year, he wrote something about El Chapo's second in command. Javier mentioned something about this guy's son trying to be like his dad and take over, and sort of implied that the son just didn't have the guts. That was it. And then, after the story run, Javier was killed. We didn't see it coming. I mean, even after I look, I read the story over and over, and I was like, come on, just because he published this? So what happened on, on the, the day he was killed? Where were you when this happened? I was, I was in this uh, Hotel Lucerna. I was waiting for someone. In Cuyacan? Yes. Then my telephone rang, and uh, it was uh, Ismael Bojorquez, the director of the newspaper. And I, hey, hey, Ismael, what's up? And, and there's silence on the other side. Hey, Ismael, and then I heard, like, someone crying. Ismael, what the fuck is happening? And he say, lo mataron, they kill him. What? They kill Javier. What are you talking about? They kill Javier, he was crying. They kill Javier. Where are you? I'm just uh, two blocks from the new the newspaper, the office. I'm, I'm on my way. So it was like I was driving, trying to find, because I didn't know where the killing took place. So I had to drive. And whenever I saw the, the, the police cars, I knew that's the place. So I just parked uh, in the corner. And uh, I, I just saw the, the, the body of Javier, and uh, the hut the was next to them. What's... It was what? shocking. It was really shocking. And this is right here in front of the newspaper? No, just around the corner, two blocks from here. Do you, like do you like snap into reporter mode and try to like make sense of the scene and, and gather information? No, no. You don't, think any, you don't think anything about that. You see you, a close friend, Lying on the ground, dead. There is this blood all over. You don't think, you don't, you don't feel like I'm gonna talk to, to the cops to get info, or maybe to the neighbors to see if what they can tell me. No, nothing. Was there an ambulance? No, they were gone. He was dead. They didn't take him. He was gone. He was. He got twelve. He was shot twelve times. And this is, why, Rio, 12, why 12? Maybe because Rio Dose, you know, the tr translation for Rio Dose, River 12, 12 times. He was killed at 12 o'clock. And it hit us all right in the face.
after after confusion, all is fear. I had this paranoia. Who's next? Who's gonna be next? Maybe, might be me. Might be someone else. And in my head, I was like, I'm gonna get a gun, and whenever they come for me, I'm gonna shoot them all. Did you get the gun? No, I didn't. But I was this close. I remember after the killing, uh, the, the director of the newspaper and Andres called me and they told me, we want you to go. Why? Go where? Anywhere. Why? Do you know something about me? Because I was, I had this paranoia. No, we don't know anything, but you know, you are high profile, just like Javier, you know, you know, the people you contact to do these interviews, these connections that you do, they know you, you're high profile, live, okay? So, I think a few days after, I left. Let them kill us all, if that is the death sentence for reporting this hell. No to silence. Those are the words of award-winning Mexican reporter Javier Veldez. Murdered in broad daylight, shot dead just meters away from where he worked. Javier Valdez was an internationally renowned journalist, exposing Mexico's drugs trade and organized crime. Writing about the country's drug cartels is becoming increasingly dangerous. Javier's death is why Miguel Angel doesn't live in Culiacan anymore. His murder was felt around the world. There was international outcry and street protests defending the rights of journalists. I remember hearing about a special issue of the paper that came out in the days after the murder. We asked if we could see a copy. This is, this is the edition. Oh, yeah. Big picture of Javier on the front. Yeah. So this is, this is, when, how, how long after the, his death did this come out? He was killed on the uh, 15, May 15. So like six days later? So six days later. Can you read the, the title? Rio 12 sigue aquí, Javier también. Rio 12 is still here, so Javier. Oh my God. And all these stories were signed under the name of Javier Valdez. Different reporters wrote. Yeah, Javier Valdez. This is the column that Javier used to write. It's blank. Yeah. Javier wasn't able to write not even a letter of his last column. And this is this column next to it is just Justicia Javier Valdez. Justice for Javier Valdez over and over. Yeah. And then his column is blank. I'm sorry. It's so intense. It is. Right now the whole newspaper is like going nuts because so it's it's we are like a family in real also we're family so every time that they do something to us or family member they hit us all
this is a way of life, and I guess there is no way out. Javier getting killed, to me, that was connected to El Chapo getting extradited to the U.S. Because after El Chapo was gone, it created all this chaos and a lot of violence within his faction of the cartel. And Javier wasn't just any journalist. He was extremely well-respected, and he was recognized all over the world. Yes, he was. And he didn't deserve to be killed like that. It was so fucking unfair. I'm okay. Yeah. It's been over a year now. Back then it was so crazy, a year ago. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to Culiacan. (laughs) And the heat. And the whole thing. Actually, I was driving this this car. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Thank you, guys, for bringing these memories, oh, sad sorry. memories. <laughs> we'll just make you uh, recount one of the worst days of your life in great detail. No problem. I feel so good. <laughs> you know, Javier helped me with a story once for Vice News. Really? Yeah. I, I was doing a story. It was after uh, a Maito Gordo was captured. No way. Uh-huh. And I How called... come you didn't call me? <laughs> I didn't know you. You didn't know me. Well, I called Javier and he, you know... Wow. Gave me insights that I, as an ignorant gringo, did not have into the significance of who Maito Gordo was. Wow. I mean, that was totally the kind of guy Javier was. He would help anyone. He really cared about the story, about getting it right. Across Mexico, dozens of journalists have been targeted and killed for reporting on the drug war in the past few years. The Committee to Protect Journalists says 26 murders of journalists have gone unsolved in Mexico in the past decade. Earlier this year, one of Javier's suspected killers was arrested and was just recently charged with homicide in Mexico. And the Sinaloa cartel member suspected of ordering the hit turned himself in at the border last year and is now in U.S. custody. But the staff at Rio Doce doesn't believe that justice has been served. When you go to the paper's website, on the top left, a new number appears daily. It tracks Las Dias de Impunidad, the days of impunity since Javier's murder. It's nearing 600 days. In 2011, Javier won the International Press Freedom Award from the Committee to Protect Journalists in recognition of courageous journalism. He says, where I work, it is dangerous to be alive. And to do journalism is to walk an invisible line drawn by bad guys who are in drug trafficking and in the government, in a field full of explosives. 
This is what most of the country is living through. One must protect oneself from everything and everyone, and there do not seem to be options or salvation. And often, there is no one to turn to.